Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Although Rodney Loper is now the president of God's Bible School and College, in 2008 he was pastoring in South Florida. He came to God's Bible School and College for their winter revival in 2008 and he preached this sermon, which is titled, Consecration, a Complete Surrender to God. I know you will enjoy this wonderful sermon. Praise God for the day that he reached down into my dark world and he changed my darkness into everlasting light. Praise his wonderful name. (laughs) I'm so glad that one day he stepped down into my world and he convicted me of sin and I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. (laughs) Life hasn't been the same since and I wouldn't trade I wouldn't trade a thing. Praise his wonderful, wonderful name. God's here tonight. (laughs) I sense his presence in a keen way, and I thank him. Isn't it wonderful we serve a God who's not obligated to step down into time and space and speak to our hearts, but every now and then he comes and he speaks and he moves and he lets us know that we're his children. Praise his name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn in them to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where I want to look in a moment. I also want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Actually, you might as well keep your finger in the entire book. We're going to be looking at quite a few verses there. And I also want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans. <clears throat> When you're in 1 Thessalonians, say amen. Amen. Now let's flip back a few pages. The book of Romans, another very familiar passage of scripture. Chapter 12, chapter 12 of Romans. When you're there, say amen. Amen. All right, let's stand together as we look at God's Word. First Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to begin looking at verse number 9. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. For what thanks can we render a God again for you for all the joy wherewith We joy for your sakes before our God. 
night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do towards you, to the end that he may establish, is the King James word, or establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Now let's turn to that very familiar passage of Scripture. If you've ever been in any of Dr. Brown's classes, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. In fact, why don't you, why don't you quote that with me tonight? All right? And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's turn to Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me and to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Let's pray. Lord, over these next few moments, we ask that you would touch. We ask that you would help, and we'll be careful to give you the praise. We'll be careful to give you the glory. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. God is serious about sin. God never coddles sin. He never condones sin. God never looks the other way. He never takes a poll to determine whether or not he will deal justly with sin. God hates sin. We sometimes in our human want to view God as a kind of grandpa figure in our life. He's all about love. He's all about giving us the desires of our heart. He's all about being kind and compassionate to us. And we sometimes think that God in His benevolent mood looks the other way when we do something that doesn't measure up to His holy standard. And nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, we serve a God who is a loving God, but... He is a God that views His law as something that you and I are not to trifle with. doesn't matter how big the issue is in our eyes. 
It doesn't matter how little or insignificant the issue is in our eyes. If it's sin, God will, will deal justly with sin. You read through the book of Leviticus, a book that deals over and over again with this issue of sin, you will see that God has much to say about sin. He has much to say about the sin that you and I willingly and knowingly commit. But He also has much to say about that sin principle that you and I are born with. Leviticus teaches us some critical truths about sin. First of all, sin is serious in God's eyes. God is serious about sin. Achan, you remember the story? Decided that he could bury the things that he wrongfully took. He could get them out of sight of those around him. But God knew. God punished Achan. God was serious about sin. Not only is God serious about sin, but, but sin separates us from God. Somehow we've got it in our mind that the little things in God's Word really don't, don't matter, but any sin will separate us from God. Sometimes I think that we miss the story in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, we know that Genesis chapter 3 is the record of the fall of man. But in the human mind, in the human psyche, if you will analyze that passage of Scripture, you'll discover that in our minds that sin's no big deal. After all, it's only a piece of fruit. After all, it wasn't that Adam and Eve went out and killed someone. It wasn't as if they broke all the commandments that God had given them. No, it was simply a little bite of a piece of fruit. In, a, in the human we say, no big deal. In the human we say, that's not significant. But God, who is just, looks down and He says, I will not tolerate sin. And He expelled them from the Garden of Eden. Sin separates us from God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. And yet when sin entered, the relationship was shattered. A holy God cannot tolerate sin in His presence. This is dreadful when we realize that sin separates us from God. Then thirdly, in Leviticus, we, we learn that blood was required for atonement, is required. For atonement. Hebrews tells us in chapter 9 and verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The Bible is also clear that Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He came, my friend, to save us from our sins. Not just the acts that you and I commit, but He also came to save us from the principle of sin. His saving power is so complete that it saves us from the effects of sin as well as making us holy once more and thus returning us into that right relationship with Him. However, 
God does not save us from all of sin and its, its effects at one time. The complete plan of salvation is unfolded in two stages. The first stage we call salvation. This is when we are justified. This is when God in His mercy grants us a full pardon. We are also made alive in Christ. We're adopted into the family of God. This is why when we sing songs about Christ and what He has done for us, that something wells up in the heart of a Christian and we say, thanks be to God that He was willing to come and die in our place. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, You hath He made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were once dead, but He's made us alive by His grace and mercy. It is also in the moment of conversion that the Holy Spirit begins to mold us and to conform us into the image of Christ. When we are converted, we are saved from the sins that we have committed. There are some who would tell you tonight that once you've experienced the grace of God that you will always be saved. We know that's contrary to God's Word. We know that's not biblical. We see this evidenced over and over again in God's Word. But somehow, somehow we in our thinking at times believe that God just looks the other way. Let me tell you tonight on the authority of God's Word, and I quote 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write unto you that you what? That you sin not. He says it again in a different way when he says it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, He that commits sin is of whom? The devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning, and for this purpose, it says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Both of these verses show us very clearly that we as Christians do not willfully commit sin. Amen? The second stage of God's gracious work is what I want to spend the bulk of my time on tonight. And that is where God deals with the principle of sin that makes us self-centered. It makes us inclined to do evil. We call this second work entire sanctification. You say, what is it? I hope you know by now. But sometimes we need to be reminded of what it is. Entire sanctification is the work of God's grace in the life of a believer that cleanses the heart from inherited depravity and fills the believer with the Holy Spirit, thereby enabling them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as their self. That shouldn't be new to you. I took it out of my permanently attached notes in my Bible. You think I'm funny. I do. I have them right here. It's so that we can serve Christ more effectively. It's so that we can be empowered 
to live a life that is pleasing in His sight. You say, how do we know that we need to be entirely sanctified? Because that self-centered nature remains after conversion. At the moment that we are saved, we are forgiven from the sins of the past. And we are reconciled to Christ. The Bible tells us that we are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And we are forgiven. However, even after we are saved, the self-centeredness remains and causes us more problems. And this is because of the condition of our heart. We still have inner issues such as pride and selfishness. We have issues like were outlined in a fax that I saw the other day. It went like this. So far, I have done all right. I haven't gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, or selfish, or overindulgent. Isn't that great? But in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And I hope I can keep it up. We laugh. It's funny. But some of you are there tonight. Amen? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you know that there is an issue inside. There's an unsettledness inside. There is something there that you are lacking. There is the issue of self-centeredness. I, as I spoke the other night, want to live life my way. I want to do things the way I want to do them. I don't want God to interpose Himself. I don't want God to reach into my circumstance. I want to do it my way. That's been epitomized by the Frank Sinatra song that said, I want to do it my way. And he did. And look where it's taken him today. We're like the Corinthians that Paul wrote to when he says, you're yet carnal. He says, I have some meat that I'd like to feed you, but you can't. You can't bear it because you're babies. You're not mature spiritually. And what this second work of grace called entire sanctification does is that it cleanses our heart and enables us to live a life that is pleasing in God's sight. This pride, this self-centeredness will reveal itself when God begins to ask us to surrender more to Him. Sometimes these are Issues that are not outlined in God's Word. Sometimes they are issues that we need in our own life. Sometimes they're guardrails that God wants to place in my life. And we, because we want to live life our way, say, I don't want to, God. And we stray from that and we balk at God asking us to do these things. For example... The Bible doesn't tell me what kind of clothes to wear. Wouldn't that be great, pastors, if it did? It doesn't. But it does tell us that we ought to dress modestly and soberly. And so when God begins to deal with us on a certain issue, 
He's doing it so that there is a guardrail in our life that will protect us from some kind of uh, snare along the way. I'll never forget. There was an issue when I was here at God's Bible School about a tie I had. I told you, I think it was yesterday, that when I was in high school, I was making a decent income. And I went out and bought a tie, and the tie cost me $90. I've never spent that. That was stupid. (laughs) But that that was in 1996. Imagine what that tie would cost today. Man, I thought that tie was special. I loved wearing that tie. I think I wore it with every outfit I had. <laughs> and God began to deal with me about that tie. He said, Rodney, you're pretty proud of that thing. And you know, at first I, I agreed. And so what I did is I went into my room, I grabbed the tie, and I took it upstairs to a, a guy upstairs, and I said, Chad, I said, here's this tie. The Lord spoke to me about this. He said, great. The next week, I pulled out my black suit and looked at my ties. And man, I really missed that tie. So I ran upstairs and said, Chad, can I borrow that tie I gave you? I'm pretty slow. He said, sure. I wore it that week. Felt guilty the entire day. Took it back to Chad. Said, here, Chad, you can have it back. The next week, I did the same exact thing. This went on for four weeks. Finally, I went to Chad's room and I said, Chad, can I borrow your t- my tie or your tie? And he said, Rodney, why do you keep bringing it up here? Obviously, the issue still remains. And when he spoke those words, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, I had kind of released the tie and given it to Chad. But I had never really let go of the tie. I tell you that story not because some of you are struggling with ties necessarily. It's not because I have a thing against ties and ties that are in style. No, what I'm trying to convey to you tonight is this, that when God speaks... He's doing it so there are some guardrails in your life so that you may not fall into a snare down the road. Amen? When God speaks to you, it doesn't matter how silly it may seem. It doesn't matter how insignificant it may seem to you. You need to surrender it to God. Another example is that God does not tell us what kind of music we ought to listen to. But it does tell us that we are to do things that bring glory to God's name. It does tell us that we're not to be a stumbling block. And so I need to be careful with the music that I listen to. Amen? Too often we want to ask others their opinion. What do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And mark it down, friends. When God speaks to you, Satan will be sure to send someone along to provide counsel that's contrary to God's Word. And so we need to determine 
That we are going to follow God and we're going to follow His Word and we're going to follow His prompting if we're ever going to live a life that is completely surrendered to Him. Oh, we want to go look and see what others think. Friends, this is the epitome of selfishness. We want to look good in the eyes of fellow man rather than look good in the eyes of God. God help us. But there is good news tonight. God has provided the grace for entire sanctification. We read that passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, and Dr. Brown will drill that into your head, and it's a good thing. We need to know that the God of peace can sanctify you entirely. We know that in this passage of Scripture that Paul is writing to Christians. We, we see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he writes to them, I, I know your work of faith and your labor of love and your patience of hope. And, and then in verse number 7 he tells them that they had been examples. And you can trace that theme of them being converted down through the chapter, 1st and 2nd chapter of Thessalonians, 3rd chapter of 1st Thess, Thessalonians. A person can be a converted and dynamic Christian and still have the need to be entirely sanctified. And yet there remains a lot of confusion over this matter of entire sanctification. I don't know why. I guess it's Satan's way of blinding us and he muddles our minds and he makes this doctrine confusing to us when, when in reality it's very simple. I want to look at it in two distinct aspects tonight. You'll let me. First of all, there is our part. What must I do to be entirely sanctified? What is incumbent upon me, incumbent upon me, if I want to be entirely sanctified? What must I do? What is required of us? That's where Romans chapter 12 comes in when it says, we must consecrate. You must present your bodies a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable unto God. This is not hard, he tells us. This is not something that, that needs to be difficult. He says, no, this is your reasonable service. It's something that is expected of us. Let me point out that this consecration is not conversion. Again, he's talking to who? He's talking to brethren. This shows us that it is a call to believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a call to those who are walking with Christ. And so my friend, if you are living with willful sin in your life, entire sanctification is not for you tonight. It is not for you. You can come, you can cry, you can plead, you can pray a prayer of consecration all you want to. But if there is sin in your life, you must repent and confess that sin before you can consecrate your heart to God. 
This is where I believe a large deal of the problems come from in our circles today. We come to the altar and we try to get entirely sanctified and we have known sin in our lives. Friend, it'll never happen that way. This work of entire sanctification is for those who are walking in holy fellowship with God, who are walking with their sins forgiven, and they're walking with a peace in their heart, and they know that they're on their way to heaven. Consecration is not conversion. Consecration is. (laughs) It is a complete surrender to God. This is a surrender of our actions. It's a surrender of our attitudes. It's a surrender of my ambitions. It's a a surrender by saying that it's no longer about me, but it's about you, oh God. I'm tired of living myself according to the plans that I have laid for myself. And oh God, I want to live according to you. It's about saying no to self and yes to God. It's about resisting those things that Satan would have to draw us back and surrendering to God. (laughs) I believe with all of my heart tonight, I believe with all of my heart that this is a major need in our world today. We need men and women who are serious about following God to the extent that they're willing to forsake themselves and follow Christ. I believe, I believe if just a few of us would truly surrender that we could turn the entire world upside down for Christ. Consecration is a complete surrender to God. Our actions. I don't do what I do because Rodney Loper wants to do it. I do what I do because I'm trying to live in fellowship with God. I don't act the way I act because I necessarily want to. I do it because I'm trying to do what God wants for me in my life. And if an action's out of line, an attitude's out of line, And the grace of entire sanctification puts a great reverse gear. And you'll go back and make restitutions. And say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I was harsh. I was critical. That's not how a Christian ought to act. You say, Pastor Rodney, you have that down. Yeah, I do. I've had to do it a few times. Why? Why? Because I'm trying to live in obedience to God. I played in a softball. You may kick me off the platform, Brother Avery. I played in a softball league in Oklahoma City. One night an umpire was just doing a terrible job. At least I thought so. Every ball he called a strike, and every strike he called a ball, and every person that made it the first he called out. And I had all I could take. And I told him about it. Went home, got a shower, got in bed, and the Lord said, Rodney, I bet he'll come to your church someday. 
I got out of bed, got dressed, drove 10 or 15 miles to where I played softball, praying the entire way that that man would still be there. Walked up, interrupted a softball game, stepped onto the field and said, not with a quiet voice, because I had railed on him with a loud voice. And I said, sir, I want you to know that how I acted a moment ago was unchristlike, and I want you to forgive me. He looked at me like I'd lost my mind. He didn't understand it. And I said, sir, life is too short and heaven is too real for me to miss it over something like a ball game. He looked at me and he said, I, I, I appreciate it. The other players that I had interrupted kind of looked at me odd and went back to their positions to finish playing. And I went back to my car and I sat and wept like a baby. And thank God that he was faithful to deal with my heart. Entire sanctification puts that reverse gear in. Helps us to be big enough, man enough, woman enough to say thank you. Or I'm sorry when I need to say I'm sorry. Amen? This consecration is a complete surrender to God. But also, listen, it's a separation from something. Look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. I'm talking about our part. Romans chapter 2, or 12, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 2. And be not conform to this world. You know what the Greek word for world is there? It's that Greek word, A-I-O-N, transliterated. It means the present age or the culture or the time and space that we find ourselves in. Friends, we're not to allow this world to dictate to us how we ought to live. I like, to, I like to be in style. I like for my clothes to match. I hope my tie does tonight. My wife's not here to pick it out. She did before I left. No, I'm just kidding. I like to be in style. I do. And there is nothing inherently wrong with that as long as what's in, in style does not violate God's word. But when it violates God's word, it doesn't matter if everyone around us is doing it. Friends, as a Christian, it is wrong. Amen? They may go places that I can't go, but guess what? I'm a Christian. I can't do it. Why? Because I am to live a life that is separated. You say, Pastor Rodney, I don't like that. That's God's word. Get over it. Amen? Who are we trying to fool? We're not, we're not living this life for ourselves. We're living it for God. And so ladies, that outfit looks great at the store and I put it on and it's not modest. I hope I don't put a dress on, but if you put it on, there, that's better. If you put the dress on and it's not modest, I don't care how pretty the dress is. I don't care how nice the dress is. 
Go hang it back up. Because we're not trying to live to please this world. We're living to please God. Amen? Now you can make it hard if you want to. You can chafe under it like I did with that crazy tie if you want to. But it is as simple as simply saying yes to God and no to the world. Allowing God's Word to have preeminence in your life. Allowing God's Word to be the controlling factor in your life. A God-surrendered life does not live according to the fads and fashions of this world. We follow God's Word. And so if we must choose... As God-surrendered people, we always choose the Word of God. Not only is there a separation, there's a transformation. Chapter 12, verse 2. Be transformed. That word transformed is where we get metamorphosized. A butterfly, caterpillar and a butterfly goes through its change. That's the word there. By the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? It's because... We focus on God's word. We focus on God's will, God's plans, God's principles, God's precepts. And we no longer think the way that we used to think. Why? Because we have surrendered our hearts and our lives to God. That's what we do when we come to the altar and we say, Oh God! Entirely sanctify me. It's a surrender of our lives. It is a consecration. Oh God, you can have every part of me that there is to have. My past, my present, my future. Oh God, it's yours. And then it's God's part. If you truly consecrate, God will do His part. You can mark it down. If the consecration is genuine... God will come shining through in all of His glory. What does God do? He purifies our hearts. This is what Acts chapter 15 talks about when Peter says of the day of Pentecost that He put no difference between us and them. He did what? He purified our hearts by faith. We are set apart for God's purpose. And we are purified. When we give Him our all, He comes and He cleanses us from the inbred nature of sin. In this purification, there's also an aspect aspect of a cleansing. We know this from Psalm 51 when He says, Create in me, what is it? A clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's a purification that takes place, but there's also an establishing that takes place. This is why I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse, verse 13. That He may establish your hearts. This means to make solid, to make firm, to make unmovable, to be grounded in God. A few years ago, the church in Oklahoma City decided that we were going to convert a six-car garage behind the parsonage into a fellowship hall. In order to do it, we felt like we needed to tear the entire exterior off and just take it down to the stud walls and then build back. And so we started that process. 
I hired a guy by the name of Raul, a Mexican, to come in and do that work. And he stripped it down to the studs, but he also took the supports off in the process. I'll never, never will I forget pulling in and Raul running up the driveway. He screamed at me in the car. He said, Rodney, Rodney, the building is falling. That kind of woke me up. I said, what do you mean, Raul? How is it falling? He said, it's leaning over the fence. It's going to fall on cars. So I jumped out of my car, raced down to the back of the parsonage, and sure enough, the building was just about to go over. I didn't know what to, I've never seen anything like that. So I started yelling, grab robes, grab chains. We've got we've to anchor this thing somehow. We're going to be paying for a bunch of cars. And so we grabbed some chains and we grabbed some ropes. God was good to us. And we pulled and winched that building back up into an upright position. I said, Raul, we're done. You're done. I need to hire somebody that knows what they're doing. <laughs> you wait. Lord willing, I'll tell you another story about Raul tomorrow. I regret the day I met him. <laughs> I do. I hired a builder to come in. He said, why in the world did you take, why did you take the supports off? I said, I have no idea. Just fix it. <laughs> he graciously did. We put some straps on. We put some bolts in. We tied that building together. Not too long after that, we had a tornado come through. I think it's funny. You live in Oklahoma. There's a tornado every night. You don't know what fear is until you're laying beside the bathtub praying, dear Jesus, help that tornado to lift over my house. And you hear bolts cracking and things flying. And that happens a lot, it seems. Tornado comes through, hops around like a tornado will do, damage all around, but that building remains solid. And firm. Why? Because it had the proper moorings. It had been rooted. It had been grounded. It had the correct structural ties that pulled it together. I'm talking to some Christians tonight who at the slightest breeze our adversary blows our direction. You're like a leaf being pushed here and being pushed there. You're not stable. You're not solid. You have the backbone of a gummy bear. You laugh. I'm serious. And you know who I'm talking to tonight. You know that when a friend comes and says, hey, let's go do this, or let's go do that, you know you better not, but the pressure to blend in, the pressure to fit in, the pressure to be accepted. Remember, I was a student once. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing exactly what we said we'd never do again, and going back upstairs and grabbing a tie. 
Hello? God's part is that He establishes us. This means He makes us solid and firm. And not only does He establish, but He empowers our heart for service. Acts tells us in the first chapter, and you shall receive power. When will you get that power? After the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, it tells us. Oklahoma, I said a moment ago, was Tornado Alley. I have seen straw driven into a telephone post and sticking out the other side. You say, how is that possible? How can that happen? It only could happen when that piece of straw became yielded to that wind's wishes, the wind's control. And when that piece of hay or straw became yielded to that wind's control, it had all the power it needed to penetrate that telephone pole. You say, how can I have the power to do what God's calling me to do? How can I have the power to go where God's calling me to go? Friend, you don't have the power. You don't have the resources in and of your own self. You don't have what you need to do what God is calling you to do. No, we are dependent upon the power of God. And this work of entire sanctification empowers us so that we're able to do what He has called us to do. When I was 16 years old, my parents bought me my first car. Some say I was lucky until I tell them the rest. It was a 1978 station wagon. Station wagon. This was 1994 when they bought it. Yeah, it was embarrassing to drive. Worse yet, it was brown. Ugly, ugly brown. What's worse yet is the first day I had it, I jumped some railroad tracks and my hubcaps went flying in all different directions. <laughs> so I had a station wagon that was brown and it didn't have hubcaps. <laughs> Terrible. All of the kids at my high school were driving the nice cars. And <laughs> at least they were made in the 80s. Maybe the 90s. And here I was driving this grocery getter. This car had many problems, and one of the problems that this car had was the gas gauge didn't work. <laughs> Go ahead and laugh. And you had to keep track with your odometer. Every time you put gas in a car, you knew it got about 10 miles a gallon, so when you went 100 miles, you knew that if you hadn't put 10 gallons in, you're in trouble. And somehow I lost track one day. And on the way out of school, with all my friends and their fancy cars, my brown station wagon ran out of gas. 
Embarrassing, you bet. I'll never forget it. Made me an emotional wreck. There I sat. Had a car, but it wouldn't go anywhere. I was on the right road, but I didn't have the resources to make it home. Some of you are sitting on the right road. You may be in the right vehicle, but you don't have the power that you need to make it home. You with me? You lack the stamina, you lack the power to do the task at hand. Friends, when we come to God and we surrender ourselves to Him, He not only cleanses us, but He empowers us to live a life that can be poured out for Him. I want you to stand with me tonight. I've preached longer than I have preached since I've been here. And I want to ask you, I'm not going to tarry long. This call to consecration, I don't believe should be one that I have to beg you to come and do. I believe that your heart had better be ready to make that consecration. And so I extend an invitation to you tonight to simply come. If you're lacking the power, if you're lacking the purity that I talked about tonight, then I invite you to come. God wants to do His part in your life. If you will make a consecration, if you will make a complete surrender, then God will do His part. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fight. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Oh